Welcome to KUOW Speakers Forum. I'm your host, John O'Brien. In this episode, most informed human beings acknowledge that Earth is hurtling toward an ever-worsening climate crisis and that humans are stoking the furnace. What then shall we do? Author Kate Aronoff says the answer involves reigning in capitalism. Her new book is Overheated, How Capitalism Broke the Planet and How We Fight Back. Aronoff argues that the fossil fuel industry, quote, the most powerful and politically entrenched companies on earth, unquote, has co-opted what should be a democratic process to keep life on earth sustainable. She asserts that they have hijacked reform movements by funding climate change deniers and by directing governmental policy. Aronoff has an alternate vision for what it will take to survive the crisis. She is a strong supporter of the Green New Deal. She says that while President Biden is providing a breath of fresh air in the climate debate, his actions so far are not near adequate to the level of the crisis. Among other measures, she recommends nationalizing the fossil fuel industry and radically reimagining politics. In this conversation, renowned environmentalist Bill McKibben, a founder of 350.org, joins Aronoff to discuss the themes of her book and the path forward. It's a sober discussion, but not without hope for viable solutions. Town Hall Seattle presented this event on April 27th as part of their Civics series. Town Hall's Ware Harmon introduced the event. Kate Aronoff is a staff writer at the New Republic and a former fellow at the Type Media Center. Her work has appeared in The Intercept, The New York Times, The Nation, Descent, Rolling Stone, and The Guardian, among other outlets. Aronoff is the co-editor of the book, We Own the Future, Democratic Socialism, American Style, which came out last year, and the co-author of A Planet to Win, Why We Need a Green New Deal, published in 2019. Bill McKibben is an author, environmentalist, and the Schumann Distinguished Scholar in Environmental Studies at Middlebury College. His 1989 book, The End of Nature, was translated into 24 languages, along with many other books, um, including his latest, Falter, Has the Human Game Begun to Play Itself Out, published in 2019. He's a founder of 350.org, the first planet-wide grassroots climate change movement. A former staff writer for The New Yorker, he writes frequently for a wide variety of publications and in 2014 was awarded the Right Livelihood Prize, sometimes called the Alternative Nobel. Kate Aronoff's book, Overheated, How Capitalism Broke the Planet and How We Fight Back is the subject of tonight's talk. Please join me in welcoming Bill McKibben and Kate Aronoff. What a, uh, what a gracious introduction. And let me just say for me, what a terrific pleasure to be back at Town Hall, even if only virtually. I feel like I should disappear for a second and then reappear as if through the door behind the stage there. As so many times before, it's one of the great places in the whole country and everybody's looking forward to seeing what it looks like once, uh, you know, um, once, once we're back on our feet and once Town Hall is fully refurbished. So many, many thanks for having us. I'm just going to begin by saying my goal tonight is very simple to, to uh, bring out the thought of thoughts of Kate Aronoff and to get you to push that button and buy her book. Um, um, she is an extraordinarily important voice uh, in the most important fight that the world has ever faced. Uh, she's writing um, constantly some of the most acute and powerful and insightful things that get written about climate change. And I am, I am extraordinarily grateful for the chance to read it uh, uh, all the time in places like the New Republic. But now this book takes it to a new level. And here's the thing about books. I mean, I've written a lot of them. Um, well, there's old books, you know, that's what the library is for. And it's a very good thing that libraries exist. Um, it's one of the things that makes writing fun, knowing that everybody can, can read what you uh, write. But 
new books and especially books early in an author's career, it's really important to sell a bunch of them too. Um, and so that we make sure that Kate can go on writing more books uh, for years to come because we badly need that voice out there. So I'm gonna return to that commercial uh, once or twice in the course of the evening. Um, but I, just to say for me, what a pleasure to be here. Um, and, and Kate, how are you tonight? I'm, I'm doing well, especially after that introduction. Thank you so much, Bill, for, for that. I'm, I'm not great at promoting myself, so I, um, it's nice to outsource that labor. It's much sometimes. easier to have someone else. Yes, that's, <laughs> that's, the, that's one of the few kinds of labor we should outsource. <laughs> and yeah. thank you so much to everyone at Town Hall um, for hosting. I, I was saying before, I'm very excited to see the space and to see Seattle for the first time where I've never, never been, unfortunately. Good heavens. Well, can I ask a question to start? Because one of the one of the sort of conceits of the book uh, is that capitalism writ large and neoliberalism writ small are kind of at the center of a lot of the um, trouble that we face. We've just come through a week where um, you know the U.S. was doing its best to reassume kind of control of the climate debate uh, with a day of um, uh, world leaders phoning in to chat with President Biden and make their pledges, followed by a day with uh, billionaire CEOs um, doing the same thing. Um, and, and tell us just kind of your reaction to, to last week. You wrote a beautiful piece in the Times last week, but just give us some sense of, you know, how optimistic are we allowed to feel? What, um, what, 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 and how should we be trying to bend all this now? Yeah, well, I'll start off by saying the book was in part inspired by attending slightly similar conferences uh, to, the, to the one that happened last week. Obviously not on Zoom, um, not at the White House, but similar in kind, right? Events where world leaders sort of come together, make a lot of pledges that sound pretty good, which I think a lot of the things that were said uh, last week sounded. Uh, but, you know, it's, it's, it's been roughly 30 years of these types of events, uh, about as old as I am, and we are, are not much closer, you know, to, to solving this crisis, especially in the United States, where we still don't have a climate law uh, to, to make good on these pledges. And uh, the, the gap, you know, is just still so big between what's required, you know, what, what very sort of sober science says about where we need to be and, and even what's being pledged as a sort of high water mark that itself will be very difficult to meet. And for, you know, for folks who um, you know, may not have, you know, been, been tracking as closely as, as, uh, you know, people whose job it is to pay attention to this sort of stuff in granular detail. Uh, Joe Biden pledged uh, as a, a requirement of rejoining the Paris Agreement, which Donald Trump, of course, left, um, to re-up the United States commitment and cut emissions by 50% below 2005 levels by 2030, which it's good that we have a new pledge. It's good to be in accordance with the Paris Agreement. That pledge is, of course, very... Uh, very far off from what it is that the United States owes to the rest of the world, given our historical responsibility for this crisis and the massive resources that the United States has to both transition our own economy off of fossil fuels very quickly and to uh, help the rest of the world do that as well with you know, financial support that has been a consistent demand from the global south for about as long as these types of things have been happening. Um, so, you know, I am, I am a cynic <laughs> a little bit of, of these types of events, having covered too many of them. I, I tried to, you know, not provide too much excruciating detail about the, um, the psychic horrors of attending UN climate talks, um, but they are, you know, sort of sensory, um, sensory deprivation tanks and in some sense. Um, but, you know, I think that the, the second day of the summit, which I'll admit I, I, didn't, uh, I didn't track so, so closely, um, again, sort of, you know, wanted to, wanted to focus on other things. But uh, I, I still think, you know, 
there has been a lot of progress that's worth taking stock of, right, in terms of how the U.S. and how the White House is talking about climate change. I mean, I certainly would not have predicted during the Democratic primary that Joe Biden would have passed a $1.9 trillion stimulus, that would that he would be talking about a trillion dollars of climate spending, right? That's a big step change. It's the most ambitious plan we've seen from a Democratic White House. Um, and it's not nearly enough. It's still not nearly enough, um, which is just the sort of crushing math that, you know, Bill, you've written about so much, so well. Um, that is just the reality of this crisis, right? We can come a very long way, but the bar is still, A, so low after four years of Donald Trump denying that the problem exists, uh, that the, you know, fossil fuel industry has dragged the conversation so far into the gutter um, that even, you know, saying this is a problem worth taking on in the United States seems like progress, which, you know, it is in some sense, but is just really, you know, far, far below what's, what's, what's needed. And sort of highlighting um, people like Bill Gates at that summit who, you know, should be at the center of every global scandal in the world, given his refusal to, uh, you know, his, his consistent defense of patents for life-saving drugs uh, is scandalous, right? And that's a, a big part of what I, what I look at in the book is, you know, what is the sort of process by which corporations and the private sector became the protagonist of the climate fight and not government, which, you know, is, is the most, uh, the, the most obvious sort of uh, agent for taking on this crisis can do all the things we want it, we want it to do. And, you know, Bill Gates is offering, uh, you know, I don't, I don't want to talk too much about him tonight, but um, is offering, I think, a pretty incomplete uh, set of solutions to this problem. Um, and, you know, the, the, types of things that I, I lay out in the book, some ideas that, you know, would fall under the rubric of a Green New Deal, um, you know, look to recenter the state as uh, a democratic, democratized state as a protagonist. And, you know, something that like during the New Deal, uh, like at different points in U.S. history, um, has been seen as a positive force in people's lives. And I think that is the sort of task of of climate policy um, is to sort of make the case that that taking on this crisis can be something that improves the vast majority of people's lives, and you know I don't think I don't think we're going to get that through through the billionaires. I think if you were going to make the best case for our, our kind of what's going on in our politics right now, it's that um, maybe just maybe Biden is resetting things a little to kind of the pre-Reagan. Um, world and at least accepting the idea that government needn't be the problem that it actually can be the uh, solution in a lot of cases. Um, but that's a hard case to make after 40 years of, you know, having Reaganism drilled into our uh, body politic. Um, so it makes it a moment of extraordinary interest. There's a lot of interesting things going on. Let me ask you a question that I was trying to write about this week a little bit, but I can't sort of figure out in my own mind how to think about it. It's one of the, you mentioned in passing in this great Times piece that, um, you, you know, one of the problems that we're going to be ha having to figure out is uh, how to deal with uh, other countries, which means especially China uh, going forward. Um, and John Kerry was able to get China to come to this thing and say what it was going to say. And then the next day, the foreign minister of China said, yeah, we'll keep cooperating as long as the rest of the world stays out of our internal affairs in Xinjiang and Hong Kong and so on and so forth. And it's this sort of strange conundrum that we have this huge problem that, we, uh, that, that will overwhelm the whole planet. Um, 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 and yet it seems completely wrong to ignore the immediate problems that are wrecking, you know, a million people in internment camps in Xinjiang. Um, how do you think about how we manage to take on both these kind of things at once as a global society? It strikes me that's one of the real powers of the book that it, that it, it imagines a world where this becomes an issue uh, it sort of takes up where Naomi Klein left off and, and imagines a world 
where this becomes a kind of lever for making lots of different change. Yeah, and I, I thank you for that for that question. And I wish I had talked a little bit more about China in the book, honestly, just given how sort of center stage it is, especially now. I mean, it has been for many years, but um, exactly that tension, right? Is that, you know, there are horrible, horrible things happening within China and it's the biggest polluter on earth now. And it's hard to imagine any path toward climate action without the United States and, uh, and, and, and China working together. So, you know, I don't, I don't know if I have any magical answers, but in the book sort of try to come up with, uh, you know, a kind of values framework to try to start thinking through that question, which is, you know, that I think solidarity is a sort of solid bedrock on which to build any sort of, any sort of program in that, in that regard. And, you know, it's my belief that working people in the United States have more in common with working people in China than they do with oligarchs in their own country. Uh, and I think that's, you know, a, certainly a tough conversation to have, you know, there is, it's not free speech in China, uh, in, in the ways that, you know, there, there is in the United States. And so those sort of direct lines are, are tough, but I've, you know, seen some really exciting work happening, um, from, you know, folks like Tabita Chow at, um, People's Action, which is trying to build sort of bridges between, um, between working folks in, in different different parts of the world. Um, and I think, you know, one thing that I wish was, was talked about a bit more um, and is directly relevant to this question is, you know, what does solar power look like? You know, what does wind power look like? I think there's been this idea for a long time that bringing more wind and solar onto the grid is sort of a good in itself and that's it. Right. And that, you know, these companies are sort of good actors and um, are on the right side of history, um, as it were. And I think that's probably in broad strokes more true, certainly than it is of the fossil fuel industry who are, um, you know, have, have been uh, misleading the public about the reality of climate change for a very long time, um, are bad actors on virtually every every count. But I think it's 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 worth understanding that. Uh, solar and wind companies, especially as these industries grow and, and evolve, uh, are, are companies, right? They are companies with an interest in making money. That is legally what they're required to do. And some parts of that supply chain, including, you know, especially the solar supply chain um, that is being in part sourced by, uh, you know, forced labor in, in parts of China, uh, are really suspect and should be called into called into question. I mean, looking sort of up and down uh, the, the length of kind of what makes, whether it's a solar panel or an electric car or wind turbine function is uh, really informative. My, my uh, friend and co-author, Theria Frankes, has done really great work looking at particularly the sort of critical minerals involved in, uh, in, in, in battery production, things like lithium and cobalt. Uh, and, you know, the labor practices involved there. And I think it's worth being uh, sort of thoughtful about what kinds of, of societies, a uh, 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 world that's running predominantly on, on wind and, and solar is creating, right? Because we see with the history of the fossil fuel industry uh, that, you know, coal sort of breeds a certain set of social relations that lends itself to certain types of societies. In that case, there are all these choke points that arise across the coal supply chain, whether people are transporting them over rail or down in the mines or, you know, burning them in, uh, in factories. There are all these choke points that arise where, where workers can really intervene and not just sort of change labor conditions within within the coal industry, but can, you know, make demands for things like a welfare state in Victorian England, which is, is, is you know, part of why there, there were things like the end of child labor um, was the strength of miners unions, right? And that's also why, as you know, Timothy Mitchell, this is sort of his, his book, uh, Carbon Democracy, really makes this point. That's part of why we get oil, right? It's because it's easier to transmit over these long, uh, long distances without, you know, pesky things like disruption from workers. So, you know, there's been some talk about whether, um, whether transitioning to wind and solar, because, you know, especially solar is more decentralized, lends itself to a different sort of society, whether that can, you know, lend itself to more sort of democratic forms of ownership um, in the energy sector, but also more broadly, whether it will have this sort of like 
transformative effect on, on, on the way our, our societies are run. And I don't think that's a given, right? And I think that part of, um, uh, part of making that happen, you know, I would like to see solar sort of give way to a more democratic society. Um, but that involves a fight over what those supply chains look like um, and really thinking, thinking through just the materiality of it from, you know, where minerals are coming from, how much the people who are building wind turbines and solar uh, and, and installing solar panels are making, whether they can join a union and fight for, uh, you know, fight to organize their workplaces. Uh, and, you know, that, that, that the story of, of how to build up a lot of, a lot of solar and, and wind power leads directly back to China because they are, you know, a, a major market force in, in those, in those, uh, in those supply chains by virtue of having uh put forward, you know, 40 years of industrial policy um, to build up, to build up those industries. So, yeah, you know, I think, so my slightly cop-out answer is to say that I think solidarity is a sort of framework and to, you know, really look at who's, who's building the staff and, and, and try to think through that and not to, you know, give in to um, the worst impulses of, of both countries, the most sort of like nationalistic gross um, uh, gross, you know, elements because we we have plenty of nationalists here. There are plenty of right wing nationalists in China, and uh, you know, I don't I don't know if Ted Cruz and his ilk are really um, making making much headway in, in making the world a better place by um, egging on a new Cold War. The uh, one of the things that's happening at the moment that's fascinating is the tension around the world as we watch vaccines start to roll out um, about who's gonna get them and how and why. And it really mirrors in many ways, the questions about um, uh, how we should be taking responsibility for the kind of carbon debt that we owe the rest of the world. I was actually, I was happy and, and uh, to see that um, Greta Thunberg the other day said, you know what, I don't think I'm going to go to the next UN conference on climate because the vaccine inequality means that lots of poor countries may not be able to get there. And I thought, I have a feeling that may be intervention enough to make sure that they vaccinate all the people that need to uh, uh, get vaccinated. But there's, there really is, uh, it seems to me, a strong lesson there, uh, a strong parallel. What else from the pandemic year um, has struck you as we've lived through it? What have you been thinking about? Yeah, I think starting off, I mean, there, there was a lot. I mean, it was, I started my job at the New Republic um, in January of 2020. And so the coronavirus is sort of firmly on the climate desk um, for probably about a month and a half and then slowly spread out into everything else, which I think is uh, you know, a, a good as, as good a metaphor as any for for the climate crisis, and that it really does you know touch everything in the way that that COVID does. But one of the things that was you know a little um, uh, surprised me uh, was was just the way that the virus sort of spread out. Right, it was you know after um, after it after infections spread in China and, and throughout other parts of Asia, um, countries like Italy and Spain and, you know, relatively wealthy nations that got hit very hard um, and struggled to respond to the crisis in, in a real way. And of course, you know, the United States' outbreak was horrible. I mean, I was living, uh, I've been living in New York the whole time and through, you know, months and months of writing this book, the main thing I heard was sirens going, going past my, my house in, in Brooklyn. Um, and so it really, I think, inverted some of the scripts about the climate crisis, right? I mean, you saw almost every night Donald Trump, Boris Johnson, leaders throughout the world, <clears throat> excuse me, go from treating COVID as this foreign policy thing that needed to be responded to with aid and compassion and, you know, being talked about like any number of other things that happens in halfway around the world to being a pressing foreign domestic crisis. Um, and, and that, you know, is is in broad strokes, slightly similar, you know, to, to, to climate, right? It's, it's talked about as this thing that's far off, this thing that's only, you know, needs to be responded to in this sort of long-term way um, with vague commitments abroad, but uh, is, is reaching American shores. I think it's easy to forget that 2020 started off with fires in Australia. 
um, devastating wildfires. And there were devastating wildfires in California throughout, throughout the pandemic and, you know, natural disasters, quote unquote, natural disasters did not slow down as, as the, the virus is spreading out. And so that's one thing. I mean, it just sort of inverted some of the, some of the scripts about this, but, you know, also saw the coronavirus, you know, spread out in the broadly the ways that our society is very unequal, right? It was predominantly, you know, black and brown folks who were hit worst by this crisis. Um, and, you know, down to zip codes, right, in terms of not only who was worst hit, where the most fatalities were, but also who got access first to vaccines. And I think that's, you know, really playing out in such a brutal way right now um, with vaccine apartheid and seeing this sort of attempt to try and fix the problem within our own borders and knowing that that's inadequate. I mean, it feels so just, you know, obvious on its, on its face that if a new variant takes off somewhere in the world that is allowed to grow and evolve and, you know, potentially uh, exceed the vaccine, that will come back to bite us, no matter how many people, how many vaccines the U.S. hoards, right? No matter, no matter how many vaccines the global north um, can sort of, you know, collect and um, how many patents that Pfizer and Moderna and Johnson and Johnson are allowed to keep and, and keep making money off of for years to come. If there's some new variant that, that you know, takes that on, then that comes back to bite us. And that's directly relevant to the climate crisis, right? If, you know, we can take on, uh, we can decarbonize our own economy very quickly in the US, we can, you know, go through great strides to close down coal plants and, and you know, do everything we can to make make the US a very green place. If that's not uh, complemented by an effort to make that possible for other parts of the world, carbon's still going to rise above the atmosphere, methane is still going to rise into the atmosphere, and it doesn't really care, you know, where, where they come from. If it's coming from somewhere, it's hurting all of us. Uh, and that demands a collective response. It just makes no sense, right, to have that play out, have that policy response play out in nationalistic terms that, you know, frame it as a competition that we're going to win the future somehow. Um, it's, it's, it hurts all of us if we don't, if we don't take this on collectively. Um, and, you know, I think COVID has, has made that, made that lesson clear. I would hope. And I just say maybe the last thing on this point is that I've been uh, surprised, I think, how much, how much COVID uh, has seemed to wipe away a lot of, a lot of sort of older scripts about austerity, about, you know, the amount of spending that's responsible. Uh, I think it's a big, a big part of why, We've seen the Biden administration, you know, throw out old, uh, old ideas about, you know, what, what kind of spending makes sense and even, you know, keep uh, people like Larry Summers out of the administration who famously kept the stimulus after, uh, after the Great Recession under a trillion dollars, not because of any sober economic analysis, but because he put his pundit hat on and said that, you know, people wouldn't like a trillion dollars and nobody would vote for it. Um, so, you know, those ideas and those people in a like very real sense are, are now on the outside. Um, and so it has sort of opened up a new conversation about, about how much money we can spend in general uh, in, in the U.S., which is very good for, for the climate crisis. I, I may have the pandemic on my mind because I, I just got my second shot and I they was reading me while I waited my 15 minutes to see if I was going to keel over. I read the CDC uh, checklist of all the side effects that might be developing in me. Um, and first on the list, actually, um, it says feeling of impending doom. And I, I suddenly was struck by the horrible thought that perhaps my entire like last 30 years of my career has just been a result reaction to some bad medicine or something long ago. But um, feeling of impending doom seems actually slightly like what we should be, what we all should be exhibiting at the moment. Um, I think you're so right about the pandemic and the way that it interacted with the other important story of the year. Um, um, the lessons that people seem to be learning in the wake of George Floyd's murder. Um, you know, the, the most important thing anybody said last year was what he said when he was being killed. I can't breathe because that's kind of the bottom line for us. And, and you know, 
obviously you can't breathe if there's a racist cop kneeling on your neck. But as activists were quick to point out, you know, you can't breathe if there's a gas-fired power plant down the road and it's always the same mm -hmm. road. You know, I mean, African-Americans have three times the asthma rate of white Americans, not because of physiology, because of geography. Um, you can't breathe because, you know, the governor of your state and the West Coast has told you to go inside and tape the window shut because the wildfires have gotten so bad. And I think you're right. The, the, the most important thing that might come out of all of this is some um, renewed sense of solidarity. We've lived our lives in the post-Reagan era convinced that markets were going to solve all problems. And, you know, Reagan's famous laugh line always in his speeches was the the nine scariest words in the English language are, I'm from the government and I'm here to help. Ah, ha, 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 you know, this last year we've learned that the scariest words in the English language are things like we ran out of ventilators or the hillside behind your house is on fire or, you know, which are not things that yield to easily to, you know, market forces or whatever. So I, 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 I think you're right. I'm, I, I, I'm hopeful that maybe, maybe um, some things, some things shifted decisively over the last year. Um, I'm going to remind people that one of the reasons we're here tonight is so that you can buy Kate Aronoff's book from Elliott Bay, from the very good people at Elliott Bay, um, um, who I hope are hanging on strong throughout the pandemic because it's one of the great institutions um, in on the West Coast of the United States. And I can't wait for the next time I get to visit. Um, as you can tell, Kate's a very good speaker and she's at least as good as a, a, a writer, um, um, thoughtful and analytic, but also just a, a gifted writer, which actually really matters. This is, um, this is difficult stuff and it has to be laid out in a way that we can understand. Someone is asking, um, this is a good question, Kate, what, what brings you to continue reporting on climate issues? What gives you the drive to work on these issues uh, uh, despite the fact that they make us feel despair? Um, and you know, tell us a little bit about how you first got into this work. Yeah, yeah, well, um, just to circle back quickly on, on something you said earlier, and, you know, to direct people toward, <laughs> toward a piece of the book. Um, you know, I think, I think you're absolutely right. I mean, the last year has seen not just COVID, but a real uprising in cities around the country for racial justice. And um, something I, I talk a bit about in the book, and which I think is, you know, really worth thinking through, is raising attention to how, how cities, how governments, how, you know, our federal government spends money and allocates resources, which I think are a real expression of, of values. You know, cities spend an inordinate amount of their, their budgets on policing, right? And on, you know, th things that, on, 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 on centering, you know, services that should be nowhere near a police department, right? Things like mental health, um, you know, basic social services that are, for some reason, um, mostly because of white supremacy, put in the, the 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 purview of police where they don't belong at all. And so I, um, you know, talk through this concept of a nonviolent economy, which comes from Coretta Scott King, uh, fighting with people like Bayard Rustin and the labor movement. Um, you know, parts of the New Left for full employment in 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 the 1970s, um, and really, you know, has this this very sort of holistic concept of of thinking about public budgets as an expression of values and as something which which decides what our priorities are as a society. And I think the thing I would like to you know leave people with in the book um, is you know thinking about that question and thinking about the fact that um, where we put our money really shows where we put our, put our, you know, our, our, our values. Um, and that should not be on policing. 
certainly, uh, and, and should be, you know, dedicated toward, um, toward social services, toward taking on this crisis and creating a good life for as many people as possible. Um, which, you know, if you look at our federal uh, budget right now with its, you know, balloon, ballooning military budget, ever growing uh, investment in, in, in expanding military bases and fighter jets and all these things we, we don't need abroad, I think that's a pretty skewed look at, at, our, at our priorities. Um, so I would direct people toward, toward that part of the book. Um, in terms of how I keep writing about this and, and how I started writing about that, I think, I think they're two sort of related questions. Um, Bill, as, as you know, and <laughs> you've, you've done sort of similar work, I uh, started uh, getting interested in the stuff by working on the fossil fuel divestment movement in, in college as a freshman. Uh, and, uh, you know, did that for four years, uh, working to get Swarthmore College to take its endowment out of fossil fuels. Still has not done that, um, but many other institutions have since we, since we, you know, started, started that campaign and, uh, you know, since uh, Bill went around the country, getting, getting other, other campuses to take up that fight um, very successfully. So, you know, still uh, a little bitter about the fact that <laughs> Swarthmore has not done that, but very glad many other institutions have. So uh, was in the climate movement for, you know, for, for, for all through college and then realized at some point that I was, I was a bit better at writing than I was at organizing. Um, and so decided to, to do that. And uh, really, you know, what keeps me going, I think, is getting to talk to people who are doing that work, who are doing, you know, work to, to um, you know, not, not just on, on climate sort of specifically, but, you know, are thinking through these questions at a really deep level, whether they're academics or organizers. And that's, you know, kind of what I, what I tried to bring to the book is just, you know, I, I get to talk to experts on this stuff, which is really fun. Um, you know, experts on movement building, experts on climate modeling, uh, you know, who are situated in very different places in the world, experts on, you know, what it's like to live with fossil fuel infrastructure in your backyard. Um, so that is uh, incredible. I mean, it's an incredible job and I feel lucky to get to do it every day and just talk to very smart, interesting people. Uh, so, so often and think through that, that with them. Yeah. It's a great moment for, I got to say for climate journalism, I get to write every week, this little free newsletter for the New Yorker on climate. And a lot of it is just uh, trying to collect and highlight the great work that people are doing. Uh, and Kate is at the forefront of this, but there are a lot of other people who are doing wonderful work right now. And I take particular pleasure in it because I remember many years when there was no one doing this work and it was very lonely. And I'm endlessly grateful for the fact that there's now a big core of people doing fantastic work. Um, but because, uh, you know, the nature of the mediums that we uh, work in now, a lot of it's short, um, fragmented, whatever else, a good reminder that we need books too, and books like the one that Kate's just published. Um, so Kate, um, let's go off your, um, your subtitle here. Someone asks, and this is a question that, that often get asked, uh, uh, do we have to uh, completely get rid of capitalism before we deal with climate change? Is that the right way to be thinking about this? Or is there some, because it seems unlikely to me that in the nine years that the IPCC has given us to, you know, fundamentally transform our energy system, we're going to completely get rid of capitalism. Is there some way to sort of think about how we move, how we use this uh, process where we have to go through because of physics and chemistry to substantially shift and change what we mean when we say capitalism? That is an excellent and often asked question <laughs> in, in these circles. Yeah, I think you're exactly right, Bill. We have such a punishingly short amount of time to take on this crisis. And I do not think that we are going to get rid of a hundreds of years old system of production and distribution and time to do that, right? And rebuild a, a worker-owned alternative. You know, I just don't think, I don't think the math is on, on our side with that. That said, 
you know, I think there are real limits to the ability of capitalism as it's currently structured, which I think is a belief system as well as an economic system and a productive system um, to, to take on this, this crisis at scale. And so, you know, what I, what I like to say is that we have to replace, uh, replace capitalism, the society's operating system and, you know, create uh, metrics for success that are not endless growth that are not as much uh, private accumulation of wealth as possible. With that said, again, you know, I'll just keep going back and forth between between little caveats here. Um, I think capitalist markets will produce solar panels. They will produce wind turbines. They will produce many of the things that we need. Um, that is just sort of what we're looking at in a best case scenario is, is that people will get rich off of doing the things that we need in the short term. But I think the lesson of history is that you need a strong labor movement and strong social movements in order to keep those sort of profit-seeking impulses in check. And, you know, I don't, I think it's, it's both a danger, as I, as I said earlier, that, you know, there will be a new class of solar barons or wind barons and, uh, you know, people who are on the right side of the energy mix, but the wrong side of history, uh, who are, who are, you know, trying to, to make their name and this stuff, including companies like Shell and BP, who are increasingly getting interested in things like power production in the US and all over the world. Um, and it's been unions who have provided a check on, on those things and been able to sort of constrain capital in the ways that make for a better society overall and keep uh, the, the kind of profit-seeking impulses of, of executives from cutting into societal gains. And so I think that is that is a sort of principle to move forward with on, on climate. Um, and, you know, I, I would think of a lot of the things I lay out in the book as kind of non-reformist reforms, um, which is, you know, I think Andre Gore's term that, I may be getting that wrong, um, but, you know, things that lead to a better society overall and are not just sort of doubling down on, on what we've got now, because I think it is, you know, possible to, for extraction to keep up, even as we transition to a new, a new, you know, energy mix. And that would be um, both a shame, and I think it also doesn't get us where we need to be. I don't think, you know, you extend, uh, extend renewable power to everyone who needs it in the sort of confines of capitalism. And so I think, you know, there need to be a different set of values uh, imparted into into this, you know, massive project of decarbonization over the next decade uh, in order to make it really work. And I don't, you know, I don't trust the private sector to to carry that out to to satisfaction. That's, I I think that may be one of the places where this will really um, be decided is, in the uh, financial in financial industry, uh, which in many ways is the key underpinning of uh, of the fossil fuel industry at the moment, and one of the things that I, I think one can be uh, hopeful about or work on, and this goes to a question that will from a listener that we'll get to in a minute: Are there bills in Congress right now that we need to be doing more advocacy around? I think one of the places we might want to be doing a lot of advocacy is around executive action um, on, I mean, the Treasury and the Federal Reserve and the SEC seem to me key players going forward. And that one thing we might come out of the next four years with is, uh, you know, forcing every company in America to assess its climate risk and things like that that might begin to, what are some of the other things, uh, you know, you've you've talked a little bit about what uh, Janet Yellen is doing at the uh, treasury and things. What are some of the other things along that line that interest you? Yeah, I guess I'll break them out into the kind of legislative and then executive powers uh, side of things. So on the legislative side, everyone is looking at the infrastructure bill, obviously, and kind of what all we can jam in there because we have a fundamentally anti-democratic political system that makes it very difficult to pass laws. And that is massively unrepresentative of this country and, uh, you know, antebellum institution called the Senate, which should, should probably not exist in a, in a small D democracy, uh, all that said. Uh, so everyone's looking at the infrastructure bill and we've seen a lot of good proposals for what that could, could look like and what it could look like to make that bill you know, worth something 
just last week, uh, the Green New Deal resolution was reintroduced in the House and along with it, um, a series of, I think, really important bills to, to make good on that and which, you know, could fit very naturally into the infrastructure conversation, a Green New Deal for public housing um, that would create hundreds of thousands of jobs, a Green New Deal for cities, which would provide resources for um, cities around the country to, you know, start their own sort of mini Green New Deals. Uh, regardless of what they're, you know, what state governments say, um, which is which is really important, you know, for places like Austin or uh, you know Bloomington, Indiana, and, and other other places sort of uh, stuck in, unfortunately, uh, not climate friendly state state legislatures. Um, to be able to you know to to enact their own local Green New Deals, a civilian climate core. Uh, making uh, a 21st century sort of uh, version of the of the CCC that I, I talk a bit about in the book, which you know put people to work building a lot of the public infrastructure people have been enjoying through the pandemic and our parks and trails and you know things like ski lodges and hunting lodges uh, that that the CCC made and you know many many parts of this country uh, that is is still going strong uh, and. Uh, you know, I think just the numbers need to go up of, of the infrastructure bill, right? The the roughly, generously speaking, $1 trillion of spending on climate that Biden proposed is much, much too small. Um, you know, that's sort of uh, what I think is, is the sort of bare minimum is, you know, a $10 trillion uh, investment over a decade, $1 trillion a year, uh, $1 trillion over eight years, which is what's on the table now is uh, just totally unacceptable in terms of the scale of scale of what's needed. Um, so upping the numbers, and I would say the PRO Act uh, is, is a really important thing to get behind that, you know, the Democratic Socialists of America, uh, joined by the Sunrise Movement, and a number of, you know, labor unions, this is the number one priority of labor movement in the country, and is, you know, both an important piece of legislation in itself, peeling back a lot of the regressive changes to labor law that have happened since the New Deal and a really important, I think, coalition building opportunity to show real solidarity between climate activists who are getting behind it and the labor movement and really undercutting a lot of the really tired, bad faith lines about jobs versus the environment um, by you know, fighting for something which could make it possible for solar and wind workers to you know, get good, strong union contracts and create you know, a clean energy economy that's worth that's worth fighting for. And, you know, Joe Biden has gotten behind that, you know, sort of full-throatedly and, uh, you know, could, could make it through the reconciliation. So that's all very, very exciting stuff. Um, you know, I'm not a magician of, of, of knowing legislative processes, but that's all, um, you know, those are, those are the things that I would, I would be paying attention to. I'm glad you gave a shout out to cities because there's a lot of important work going on. In, including there in Seattle, which has always been one of the real hotbeds of the climate movement. And so, you know, so many thanks to everybody from Climate Solutions to the 350 Seattle crew to Mazoska Talks to on and on and on, local sunrise, just people doing amazing work. Um, um, and that kind of um, line that, that activists across the Northwest managed to kind of draw that kept uh, coal ports from being built and, and, and that kind of thing have been extraordinarily important. We probably should give a thought tonight as we're talking to our remarkable colleagues up in Minnesota who um, are mm -hmm. working hard on this line three um, um, debacle and, and really beginning to pressure the Biden administration to not only be for good things, but against bad things, which is always harder for politicians. Um, here's a question from someone that I think is about as softball, if I didn't know better, I'd say your mother was writing in. Um, would, Kate have might some, be. would Kate have some words of how her book is organized and the topics she covers? So give us a two or three minute precy of, of uh, overheated. Um, so that people have some sense of, of what it is they're buying. Sure. Yeah, that's a great that's a great question. Whoever wrote it, including if that's my mom, who I didn't think was watching tonight, but could be. So hi, mom. Uh, so the first half, roughly, of the book uh, looks at how we got here. So what 
is it uh, that, that, you know, got us into this place of not being able to sort of consider the, the sort of scale of solutions that we need. So, you know, I start back at uh, the Columbian Exchange and don't stay there too long, but I think it's, you know, important to take into account the, the, the you know, legacy of, of colonialism and, and slavery and building, you know, the system we have today and the foundational role that continues to play in our, our you know, thought process around climate action and everything else in, in society. So that chunk looks roughly at the last 40 or 50 years or so of the first half of the book. So looking at carbon pricing, looking at the fight over cap and trade in 2009 and 2010 as sort of a cautionary tale uh, of, of trying to appeal to industry and uh, what the UN process has, has, how that's evolved and, you know, the ideas that have been taken off the table, how ideas have been taken off the table for not only a more equal United States, but a more equal world order, uh, which is, you know, shows up just time and time and again in, in any kind of UN, UN climate, climate discussion. Um, and so the second half of the book kind of kicks off with uh, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez uh, with the Sunrise Movement occupying Nancy Pelosi's office in uh, 2018, calling for a Green New Deal. Uh, the second, second Part two of the book is called Green Dreams versus Eco-Apartheid, which I feel like is a good summation of what's there. And so I bring up uh, mostly a series of, you know, what I would call non-reformist reforms for getting us out of this mess. So uh, looking at ideas to bring electric utilities under public ownership, to nationalize the fossil fuel industry, to create a managed decline and just transition for, for workers and communities in that sector. Um, looking at the, the, Fight for a federal job guarantee, which I, I talked a little bit about earlier, and for a nonviolent economy dating back to, uh, you know, some of the leaders of the civil rights movement and the black freedom struggles. Uh, and, you know, finally end on a four day work week, uh, and, and kind of a vision for what life could be like uh, under under Green New Deal that would be, you know, much more pleasant and leisurely than the one than the one that we we have now and, you know, en route to that get into, you know, some nitty gritty questions about trade and and uh, executive powers and, and you know, how to, how to think, think through this in a sort of internationalist way. Um, but yeah, roughly first half, how we got here, second half, how we, how we, how we go forward. How we get out. The, um, the, uh, by the way, I'm told that it was not your mother who submitted that question. <laughs> it was Edward Imbeer, so many thanks. Okay. Um, and it's a good question. Um, one of the, um, one of the things that's been very interesting to watch about, we were talking earlier about climate journalism. And one of the things that's been very interesting to me to watch is the degree to which it's uh, women who are now producing the bulk of this work and, and, um, and an immense amount of the really good stuff that's going on. And this sort of uh, a kind of climate feminist um, sensibility emerging. Um, talk about that a little bit, because I think it's, it's sort of one of the most interesting things that's been happening in the last few years. Yeah, yeah, I mean, that's exactly right. <laughs> I think a lot of the, the, the sort of cutting edge journalism happening now is, is happening by, um, by women. I think that's in part, you know, a testament to newsrooms getting a bit better in part three, three unionization efforts. Uh, I am, you know, a proud, a proud union, union media worker um, at, a, at the New Republic News Guild. Uh, yeah, I mean, I think, I, you know, I, I think it, I don't want to like fall into a, a, a sort of trope of saying women are like more connected to the earth or, <laughs> or something like that. Um, but, you know, I think part of, uh, part of, of what informs some of the most interesting climate journalism, I think it was looking for stories where uh, they looking for stories that aren't told, right. Which, which often is, you know, folks who are not, um, are, are not, you know, at the the most interviewed for um, stories and in, in, in big outlets are not, you know, are, are, are kind of suppressed stories. Uh, and, you know, I think 
it's it's hard to I think generalize generalize a bit about you know women women climate journalists other than to say that there are a lot of a lot of really fantastic women um, well, doing we this work. We can recommend that terrific book that came out uh, last year, All We Can Save, which has essays and poems from 42 uh, remarkable women. There's something else to look for the next time you're at Elliott Bay. And I'm told that we actually do have a question from your mother now. <laughs> it kind of follows on that one. I inspired um, her. Um, you know, oh, and this is actually a very good question to end on. Uh, what keeps you hopeful for the future? And more particularly, sort of following on the last question, the other one of the other obvious things that's happening is that young people are coming to the fore here. Uh, uh, how do you see younger generations inspiring action? What should we take from that? Yeah, I mean, the thing that keeps me hopeful, you know, really is people doing this work. I mean, just in the time that I was reporting this book, right? I, I pitched it in the summer of 2018 before Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez was elected to Congress. I'm pretty sure certainly before the Green New Deal had kind of re-emerged into headlines uh, with that set of Nancy Pelosi's office. And so even just through the course of writing this book, I've seen the conversation change so much um, from where it was. You know, I thought I was gonna have to write a book about Elon Musk and Michael Bloomberg uh, making, <laughs> dominating the conversation about climate change and, you know, a couple months into the book, that wasn't the case anymore, uh, which is a very, you know, happy, happy development. Uh, and so I get to talk to those people who are changing that conversation every day, you know, and got to talk to a lot of people through this book who are, who are doing that. And that's incredible, you know, and I think I'd be very sad if I, if I had to, if I didn't get to do that. <laughs> <laughs> just had to, you know, rely on my own, my own thoughts and analysis, which I, you know, run up against the limits of pretty, pretty quickly if I'm not, if I'm not looking outside it. But yeah, I mean, I think the climate strikes, uh, certainly everything that Greta Thunberg has been doing um, the last several years uh, has, has really, you know, injected a lot into, into this conversation and, you know, the sort of consistent demands that have been coming from, um, from the global South, you know, it's one of the I talked about the sort of psychic cargoes of attending the, the UN climate talks, but what keeps me coming back, and I think what makes that such an energizing space actually is to, um, you know, you get to talk to people and interview people from all over the world who are, uh, you know, dealing in, in much more visceral ways, I think, than, than uh, many people are here with the effects of the climate crisis, but are also, you know, have, I you know, think better ideas. I think it's a, it was a sort of lesson in writing this book and a lesson from the last, you know, five, five or so years I've been doing this reporting is that I think the people who are living closest to the crisis, who are, you know, living closest both to climate destruction and to, you know, fossil fuel infrastructure and dealing, dealing with that up front often have some of the best ideas for, for how to get out of it. Uh, and that's, you know, a, a sort of wonderful thing to get to explore. Um, you know, as a thinker, I think that's how I, or as a writer, that's like how I process things is to, to go out and, and, and talk to people about them. Um, and there are some really good ideas that are out there. And there's a lot of exciting cross-pollination across movements um, about, about how to take on, take on this, this crisis. So yeah, that's, that's what, what keeps me helpful is just being a big old nerd. Well, I can just say with great appreciation that uh, those of us who are old are very glad that younger people. I mean, and, and it's very appropriate too. I mean, I'm going to be dead before we're at the worst of all of this, but people your age are going to be in the absolute prime of their lives. And so it makes great sense that they're issuing the call. And it does strike me that it's now the job of the rest of us, maybe especially older people to listen to that call and back it up. Um, there's a limit to what the Gretas of the world can do because they can't vote. They don't have financial resources yet. Um, and so it's going to take some of the rest of us really um, standing up. And there's more organizing to come now that we're getting vaccinated. But in the meantime, but in the meantime, prepare yourself for what's coming by reading Kate's book, Overheated. It really is something. And I, it really is a great pleasure to have gotten to, to talk with you tonight. Um, and and just to be able to say thanks publicly for the uh, extraordinary work that you're doing. It's it's um 
well, it's something to watch. And uh, people should read the book and they should read The New Republic regularly too to keep track of what you're doing because it's very much on the cutting edge of, of the most important questions that the world faces. So thank you very much. Hey. Thank you so much, Bill. And I'll just say one bit of, of, of gratuitous praise for you. <laughs> just that I don't think I would be doing this if, if, if you hadn't, you know, been doing everything you've been doing for a very long time. Um, and particularly, you know, for just modeling kind of what it looks like to do thoughtful, engaged, rigorous writing and reporting uh, and fighting the good fight at the same time. It's so rare that, you know, People can do both of those things so well and you manage to encapsulate that in, in one person, which is, you know, so inspiring. And I, I strive for, for that level of balance every day and haven't found it yet, but <laughs> keep, keep looking, looking to what you're doing to, to get corners. Town Hall Seattle presented this event on April 27th as part of their civics series. To find the full event and other great Seattle area talks, go to our website, KUOW.org slash speakers. While you're there, subscribe to our podcast and share your comments. Thank you for listening. Tune in again soon.